0: This is not Sean Connery, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to the 430 Movie
1: podcast at 430movie.com. If you like Star Trek, you'll love Trek experts in which our Treksperts, Mark A. Altman and myself, Darren Doctorman, talk Trek every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: If you're a Star Wars fan, check out the Electric Surge Network's new podcast, The Rebel and the
1: Rogue, in which two diehard Star Wars fans discuss a galaxy far, far away with special guests every week. We would be honored if you would join us.
3: Should I take the fact that our mics are now on, that we are good to go? We good to go over there, Bill? All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Comic-Con. We are the podcast, Best Movies Never Made, since I assume a lot of people here uh, probably have not heard of our podcast. We might as well give ourselves a little intro. Um, This is Steve Scarlatta, my co-host. Hello. I am Josh Miller, um, yay. Uh, basically, <laughs> Steve made a really awesome documentary that I hope everyone here has seen, and if not, we'll fix that soon, called Yodorowski's Dune. Which was about an attempt in the 70s to turn Dune into a movie. That uh, the, the story of it not getting made is almost better than the movie could ever have been, though I still wish they'd made it. Uh, so Steve and I decided to basically just do a podcast of that, where each episode is a new, interesting movie that never got made. Uh, myself, uh, I am a writer-director. I created an animated show that no one really watched called Golan the Insatiable. Uh, Thank you. Sounds, that, that amount of applause felt appropriate. Um, most recently, I wrote the uh, surprisingly scandalous Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Uh, when I got that job, uh, if you had asked me, do you think the internet is going to be super pissed off in two years about this movie? I would have said, I don't think anyone's going to care we're making this movie. Um, shows what I know. But today we are talking about a very, very wonderful movie that never got made called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Uh, And with us to discuss it, we have a great panel here. Uh, For our listeners at home, since there's so many guests, why don't you just each introduce yourself and what people might know you from. Thank you, baby. Um, Let's start with you.
4: Yeah, of course I have to be here. If we're talking about Beetlejuice, you have to have at least one goth girl on the panel. It's legally required. Uh, my name is Mallory O'Mara. I'm the author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon. I'm also a filmmaker. I produce for a company called Dark Dunes Productions. And every week, I co-host the literary podcast, Reading Glasses.
5: Yay. Uh, hey, uh, Judson Scott. I am de- uh, develop and produce horror films with James Wan at his production company, Atomic Monster. Uh, huge fan of this podcast, very happy to be here, and uh, most recently worked on Annabelle Comes Home,
6: which is still in theater, so go see it if you haven't. I, hi, I'm Steve Melching. I'm an animation writer producer. You, you might know me from such animated shows as X Men The Animated Series, Transformers Prime, Star Wars The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, and the currently uh, playing Carmen Sandiego on Netflix. also the co-host of the uh, 430 movie podcast with uh, my colleague Ashley Miller and a couple other friends and we're going to be doing a panel later this afternoon for that podcast
1: hi uh, I'm Ashley Miller as you might have guessed from Steve's intro uh, I am a writer I wrote Thor X-Men first class I've done some TV stuff Uh, also as a profession recently I've been trying to scare the living out of their homes So, (laughs) enjoy the podcast
0: today.
3: Yeah! Um, Well, since we've got this crowd here, a lot of newbies for us, I think a good way to just start off is even the concept of unmade movies. Um, Sorry, listeners at home, a story I've told on our podcast a million times, is how I got interested in the concept of unmade movies was that when I was a kid, one of my mom's friends got me one or whatever you call it, of Marvel stock. Um, No, I am not a millionaire now because Marvel went bankrupt in the 90s after that. Uh, But you would get their quarterly reports, which Marvel, being Marvel, would send as these kind of fun little comic books. And I remember at some point in the early 90s, they announced that James Cameron was going to be doing Spider-Man as his next movie, and I was so excited because I loved Terminator 2. And then I kind of just realized a few years later, I was like, whatever happened to that Spider-Man movie? James Cameron seems to be making other movies. Um, And, you know, kind of in pre-internet days, and I didn't really read a lot of film magazines. uh, I had no idea that really for every one movie that gets made, probably 50 movies or more don't. Um,
1: I would be writing those 50. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Maybe you guys even talk like, Judson, you're actually in a pretty good position. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, anyone who's been writing and directing knows that you have your own projects now get made, but I mean, how would you even just describe your job and just the influx of movies coming in and out and kind of waiting for some to get made?
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, producing is just all about pushing the ball forward and trying to convince a studio to write you a big check to go make a movie, right? Like, I don't have $20 million, unfortunately, to greenlight movies, but I know enough people that if I you know, sentiment of material and push hard and believe in it and back the filmmakers and back the scripts that hopefully somebody is going to take a shot and write us that check. And the reality is studios aren't always thrilled to be writing those giant multi-million-dollar checks and they want to know that if they're doing that, it's for something that they think they're going to see a big return on. So, you know, it's essentially becomes a numbers game at that point And you just try and, as a producer, bring on as much material that you love and believe in So that when you're bringing it to the money people, that passion shows and hopefully, you know, they won't pick all of them, but out of the ones they do pick, if you love all of them, then you go off and make that movie. And, you know, I think it's just a a numbers game. There's more great material than there is money to make it all, you know.
3: And at least certainly from the like writing-directing side, it almost often feels random which of the projects you're working on gets made. Like Steve and I got here to San Diego yesterday. and We had nothing better to do, so we are like, let's go see Crawl. Um, super fun killer Alligators yeah, movie, awesome by movie. the way. Yeah. But at the same time, we were like, oh, it's kind of funny that Alexander Aha, this was like the movie he wanted to make, but then you remind yourself, well, he probably wanted to make like 20 movies, yeah. uh, and this was just the one that moved forward, and he was like, all right. I'm gonna make a killer alligator movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> very expensive killer. <laughs>
3: yes, yeah. um, but uh, like Ash. Yo, hey, 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 down there. Hey, how's it going? Hey. I'm good. How are you? Um, how? What would you say your own personal percentage is on movies you've attempted to get made versus ones that get made?
1: <laughs> okay, so. I've had three movies made in my career, which relative to the number of scripts I've written. Now, I'm not gonna count things that I worked on, did rewrites on, did script surgery on, whatever. Um, I am pretty sure that if I walk outside today, the International Space Station has a greater chance of hitting me on the head uh, (laughs) than a movie getting made. I
5: mean, I, I think that's the percentage (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and like those odds. It, 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 <laughs> I mean,
5: you know, Ashley would know, and, and you would know too, Josh. Like, there's a million reasons why something doesn't get made, and oftentimes few reasons why something does. And like, with the example of Crawl, you know, the shallows did really well, and that helped. And the script was simple and marketable. And there's a million reasons, and maybe someone at Paramount decided they really wanted to make a killer animal movie this year, and so that happened. You know? Killer animals are so hot right so now. So hot, yeah. Um,
3: <laughs> And there's definitely a very uh, real feeling of just like a window you got to hit and how it's basically did you go in with that script or that idea on that one day where that one exec like was into something or uh, had gotten over being sick of something like as someone who very much wants to do an animated movie set in outer space. Titan AE bombed so bad that, like, (laughs) 20 years later, people are still just like, no one wants to see an animated movie in outer space, Um, which maybe they don't. But uh, Mallory, I also think another misperception people have is that people think of, like, indie movies as the ones that have to struggle, but as Judson was kind of noting, even, like, the big studios, you can't just get something made because you want to, but... Uh, for the company that you'd work for, are you still working for?
4: Yeah, and we make all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, like, that's the great part. But and we just don't have as much money to do it.
3: Yeah, and what would you say is your guy's kind of like ratio? Ooh.
4: Right now, it's not space station level, maybe <laughs> maybe like eaten by a shark level.
3: All right, all right. <laughs> by the way, your chances of getting eaten by an alligator according to crawl, really good. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Much better than sharks. Uh, but I think the the challenge that we have in the indie world, at least for my company, like, especially now, like, I'm the one who gets to make those decisions. Like, the last movie we made is a live-action puppet film, and we love puppets, and it's, uh, it's, like, Dark Crystal meets Princess Mononoke. It's called Yamasong. You can watch it now. It's on out on VOD. And so we didn't have someone out there going, oh, puppets, that's weird. It was me going, oh, heck yes, puppets, let's do this. The problem that we had is when we hit the distribution companies. Those were the people who were like puppets like, well, like not these kind of puppets and that, that was the problem that we had is getting people to get it out into the world
3: and now maybe moving on to Beetlejuice because that's what we all really want to talk about um, but maybe things up just a little bit let's talk just about the first film um, I assume everyone here has seen Beetlejuice has anyone here not seen Beetlejuice
4: Oh, wow. Boy. Very few, though. Wow. You are um, in for a wild ride, my friends.
3: Yeah. So, this is just going to be like, yeah. wow, they they almost made a really weird sequel to a movie I don't know much about. Um, <laughs> I will say before
4: we do anything, please do not judge Beetlejuice based on what we're about to talk about. <laughs> please do not.
3: Um, but Beetlejuice, and we'll probably do an episode on this at some point. Uh, because the two things we kind of do in our podcast is talk about movies that just straight up didn't get made, but then also what will happen is a movie, a perfect example of one of our earlier episodes was a guy named William Malone who did House on a Haunted Hill, the 90s version, um, tried to do a movie called, was a Dead Star? Yeah. Called Dead Star that was based on like H.R. Giger um, designs, and that eventually did get made, but... Like, having read the script and seeing the movie it got made into, which was the James Spader movie, Supernova, from the 90s, Um, if you have not heard of it, good. (laughs) Um, But, so we also talk about movies that just got made at a completely different version than what it was originally written to be, and Beetlejuice was a very, originally it was like a real R-rated, like, dark, scary movie written by a guy named Michael McDowell, uh, who... I think wrote like a lot of novels, but he was very accomplished in like kind of the '80s uh, horror anthology TV renaissance. Worked for, for uh, like Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, Monsters, Amazing Stories, and he wrote uh, an episode of the new Alfred Hitchcock Presents called The Jar, which was directed by Tim Burton. Um, So I think when Tim Burton got sent the script for Beetlejuice, which was, I mean, still basically the same idea. It was about a guy performing exorcisms on the living. I think that was kind of the, the idea about people in the afterlife. But Again, he was like much meaner. And then there was kind of a long rewrite process. um, And Burton brought in a guy named Warren Scarin. Skarin, we're not quite sure how to say that, who ended up doing rewrites on Batman and Beverly Hills Cop 2. And also wrote a different Beetlejuice 2 that we're going to talk about after we talk about Hawaiian. But then that turned into the the more friendly family version of Beetlejuice that we all know. Um, And in some ways, it's hard to say that Beetlejuice Hawaiian is just super insane because it is, but really Beetlejuice is pretty insane. It worked, but I feel like like Judson, if I just came in to meet with you and pitched you Beetlejuice, I would not be surprised if you were just like, "Who's what? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, no, and you're-, you're like, I'd maybe watch it. I don't know if we can spend a lot of money on yeah, this. You're, uh, you're
5: totally right, and that's what's so wonderful about Beetlejuice is that it Exists right? I mean, there's just absolutely nothing like it, and it's so bananas in the best way possible. It really is like lightning in a bottle, really. From everything, from just the visuals of it, and it's probably it's my favorite Tim Burton movie, and it's the most excuse me, in my opinion, it's the most Tim Burton movie there is. And uh, to the performances, it's just really wonderful. And, And you're right. Like if I read that today, I'd probably be like, this is amazing. I want to work with this writer, but the chances of me converting this into a production would be probably pretty slim.
2: Yeah, I guess I guess it's a good point because a lot of people, I think, always real, think that be- uh, Tim Burton wrote Beetlejuice, and it's the movie that really, I think, set his aesthetic up, but it wasn't written by him. And... He was actually still attached to Batman at the time, but he did Beetlejuice in the meantime, and as soon as Beetlejuice exploded, he jumped on Batman. But when you really think of it, it's kind of interesting that it is the movie that really set up his whole, like I just said, is this... Well,
3: it being a big hit, because he's definitely had one of those weird careers, uh, maybe kind of now to the point where... It's not great that he got so fixed and just like I make these funny family movies with like weird aesthetics, but the fact that that was such a big hit, then he was kind of just like, oh, I can do whatever I want for a little while, which is great because we got Nightmare Before Christmas and Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood, Mars Attacks. Um, but were you was everyone on the panel here a Beetlejuice fan in your younger days? Have you oh, seen yeah. me? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I,
6: I remember reading an early draft of the script when I was in film school. The USC film school had a library that people would donate scripts to, and I remember hearing about Beetlejuice and read it, and it was, like as you said, a very different script. It was more of a horror movie. But uh, yeah, no, I, I saw the movie and came down. I loved it.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I think um, one of the reasons why Beetlejuice ultimately worked as a film, and I think it's this is sort of a preview of... I think reasons why Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian didn't get made. Um,
4: you think I mean, that's there's... the only reason?
1: Oh, I think there's so many. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> but I think it's like it's root cause. Uh, the Beetlejuice that original film started off as a legit haunted house movie. And it had a very solid concept in the middle of it that gave it some gravity and gave it a reason to exist. And then it had a great twist on that formula. But you can still watch Beetlejuice as a very straight-ahead horror haunted house film. It knows exactly what it is and exactly what it's sending up. And I think um, sometimes what happens with sequels is people forget what that core idea is and what that core concept is. Um, They mistake the success of a particular character or a particular scenario for the core idea that makes it work. And
0: then they go to Hawaii.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but it's amazing how little horror is actually in this Beetlejuice sequel. Yeah.
3: I mean, when I saw the original Beetlejuice as a kid, it scared the crap out of me in places to the point where I remember when I watched it again, dreading the part where the banister turns into the Beetlejuice snake? Because I was just like, I know it's coming and it's going to scare the crap out of me.
4: I think Beetlejuice was one of the really important movies for like 90s weirdo kids. There was like Beetlejuice, Adam's Family, Edward Scissorhands, and then you watched all of those and all of a sudden you had trip pants on and you were at Hot Topic all the time. Uh, But I really, like, And joking aside, I think those three movies really helped form the core of like 90s dark goth kid aesthetic and like the kind of things that you like. And you're like, oh, I think I like Tim Burton now. And I think that kind of movie was really the gateway into a lot of horror for kids who grew up in that time period.
3: And it's maybe not surprising, Larry Wilson, who I forgot to mention, also worked on the Beetlejuice script, uh, also worked on the Addams Family movie script. So it's all connected. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Steve, maybe want you to tee up a little bit. Uh, into Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian here before we talk about the movie itself.
2: Yeah, really quick. Uh, Beetlejuice was released in March 1988, and it had a $13 million budget, and it grossed $73 million. Remember
3: when that was a hit? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Pretty huge. And so by that, Febu- uh, by that May, David Geffen, the producer, pretty much immediately announced Beetlejuice 2. And he said, all we know about the script, it will be set in contemporary place like the first one. The premise so far has Sylvia Sidney, the lady in charge of the great beyond, the smoking lady, saying, hey, we're going to give you one more chance, Beetlejuice. Because in that movie, in the original Beetlejuice, it was known that he was her assistant before he went. So that was the original concept. And then in 1989, they brought the original writer, Warren Saccharin, back? Skarin, Scarin. Yeah. And then, Scarin. Scarin." And then a year later in 1990, it was announced everywhere that Warner Brothers had registered Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And then a month later, Beetlejuice in Love was finished. So it seems like these two scripts were kind of battling each other at the time and i guess that kind of leads us into beetlejuice goes hawaiian um, is that like a no matter who wins we lose
3: scenario? Yeah. yeah yeah just like alien versus predator yeah. and i, oh, I guess really... <laughs> yeah I, I guess also it wasn't a joke that was the tagline yeah. of alien versus predator <laughs> a very apt Tagline, as it turned out. A lot of people think
2: Daniel Waters came in for Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian, but he said um, I talked about Beetlejuice working for the first family in the White House, and Tim was mildly amused. And then he got the job for he got the job to write Batman Returns. So, so Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. I guess that's where we are at right now.
3: All right. Well, let's get into it. And I think because movie like this because this was based on an idea that Tim Burton had, um, and. Might be like, oh, that's why would he want to make that? But I also think a detail from the original Beetlejuice that maybe contextualizes things is whether or not people know um, he didn't want to cast Michael Keaton. I think once he met him, he was like, oh, this guy's great. But at that time, Michael Keaton wasn't really a big star. He'd been on like a TV show nobody watched, and I think he'd done Night Shift and a couple other movies. Like Mr. Um,
6: Mom was Mr. Mr. Mom Mom.
3: great movie. Um, But uh, Tim Burton wanted Sammy Davis Jr. to play (laughs) Beetlejuice. Obviously. and I like Sammy Davis Jr. And that movie would have been interesting. But it maybe shows where Tim Burton's head was at when he's allowed to do whatever he wants. The weird part
1: is, if he had cast Sammy Davis Jr., do you think Sammy Davis Jr. would have been cast as Batman?
3: Yes. 100%. (laughs) That would
1: have been amazing.
3: I am I'm Batman, baby. I was about to say, we all lean forward to do bad Sammy Davis Jr. impressions.
2: But, but the, the writer also, Jonathan Gems, that he hired for Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, um, also wrote The Fall of the House of the Usher for Tim Burton, which was going to take place in Burbank. And it was a comedy. And I guess they hit it off. And that's how he got the gig for Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And he's written a couple of films for Tim Burton that never got made. This
3: guy has like a whole, Steve can get into it maybe after we talk about Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. But he basically had a whole career of just unmade Tim Burton movies. Uh, It's kind of impressive. But, all right, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And just right off the bat. I think the weird thing to me about this, it does make sense with Burton because he loves that kind of, like, kitsch, you know? Um, He just thought it would be funny to have surfing in a Beetlejuice movie. But the problem of going to Hawaii, specifically to me, I don't know if this... It's just a generational thing. I just think of that like, there was like a 20-year period where it was really popular for TV shows yes. to have like a multi-part or like a spin-off TV movie where they go to Hawaii. Yeah. Like, I Dream of Jeannie did it, Brady Bunch did it. Didn't it save by, was it Saved by the oh, Bell? Oh, Saved by the yeah, Bell yeah. definitely did it. it step by the Step, the right. Full House, Growing Pains. Yeah. Sanford and Son. <laughs> called a paid vacation to Hawaii. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. When are we going to get our Hawaiian episode of uh, Clone Wars? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And rested and ready. Um, but all right, let's just dig right in. Oh, wait, I just Maybe guys, what, what, uh, first impressions, even when you just heard that this was a movie that someone wrote.
4: Uh. One blood tear came out of my eye. All right. <laughs> uh, when I, well, when I, so when I knew what we were gonna do, and you sent me the script, and I looked at the first page, I was so impressed that somehow somebody managed to make Beetlejuice even hornier than the original. Oh, version. way hornier. I mean, I was very impressed.
5: Judson. Yeah, uh, my first blush reaction to reading this was, man, Tim Burton really does not want to make a sequel. To <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is one of the most impossible film scripts I've ever read. It would have been his most expensive movie at that point, I would imagine. And I think it's an interesting game of chicken he may have been playing, whereas to say, I really don't wanna make a sequel to Beetlejuice, but if I do, I'm gonna have the biggest budget I've ever
6: had and a free vacation in Hawaii. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna stick up for the the concept of the script a little bit, because I think it's actually a decent idea. I like the change of milieu, to Hawaii. It's got that kitsch to it, which is I think could be fun in the way the sort of the Calypso stuff in Beetlejuice was fun. And at its core, I think the story's not bad. The idea that the the, the basic premise is the Dietz family from the original movie, uh, Jeffrey Jones, Catherine O'Hara, Winona Ryder, and uh, Glenn Shaddix as Otho uh, are opening a resort on in Hawaii. But it turns out they've built the resort on sacred... Hawaiian land, and the the kahunas are not happy about that, and they want to get rid of the Dietz family. And Beetlejuice is still like after Lydia, who is a, a is he, she she in college at this point? She's older, she's a few years older. And uh, and and the idea that Beetlejuice is going up against these kahunas in Hawaii, I think it's kind of fun. There's a surfing contest in it. That sounds kooky, but unfortunately. <laughs> Grip doesn't deliver on that concept at all.
4: I actually think aesthetically it could have worked. There, I mean, everyone knows there is so much like, crossover between like 50s tiki aesthetic and goth stuff, so I think it, seeing a, t- a Tim Burton tiki movie could have actually been yeah. kind of cool mm-hmm. if it wasn't hot trash. Well, he grew up
6: in the valley, right? He probably had a, That's what a I mean. Cool. Like, Burbank
4: cool. looks yeah. like yeah. this.
6: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, well, for me, I read this script... And it was immediately one of those scripts that I thought I love to work on uh, and do rewrites. And I'll tell you why. Because every once in a while, somebody will give you an assignment where it is impossible to fail. (laughs) (laughs) You can only succeed. And this is only success. That's what I see.
3: And I, and I will say, kind of backing up what Steve was saying, I, I guess one thing I always like to reiterate on the show, especially when it's a script that we're uh, poking fun at, um, is probably just the first draft. Actually, it's a it was hard just, job. Do we know, Steve, if there were more drafts of I this? This is the only draft I can see
2: out there. Um, I, I, I do not know if it went past this first draft.
3: But so it is possible, because this was a, this was a good 10 years, I'd say, before Tim Burton kind of, started, he had a pretty good hot streak of like only making awesome movies, which is also probably why he didn't push really hard to make this, because yeah. he was kind of like, <laughs> um But I do think that if this had moved forward and gotten rewritten and they'd brought in other writers, there probably was a funny Tim Burton surfing movie buried somewhere in here. Uh, not this draft, though. Yeah,
2: I think uh, Gems explained that Tim thought it would be funny to match the surfing backdrop of a beach movie with some sort of German expressionism. <laughs>
6: so...
2: <laughs> That sums
3: up Tim Burton yeah, yeah. pretty well.
6: <laughs> but, but I, so up for a line.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually agree with Steven though. There are some sound mechanics here, and there's, there's Bones to be a fun movie, and with a whole, whole lot of work, they may have gotten there. Yep. But yeah, this is wow.
2: But I think what Judson was saying was correct. I think this went so bad, not going to curse, um, that... <laughs> That um I think it was the way for him to get full, complete control over Batman returns, which he did, and then that's why this script uh went dormant for a little while. So I think you know I think you have the right theory on that one. Because when you read this, it's 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 like beyond what Waterworld would have cost. It's, <laughs> as we'll go through it.
3: Yeah, well so we'll get into it. So um well actually I love that Steve already gave us a kind of Capsule summary, uh, so I don't have to do that. I can do. It. This was definitely one of those things. This happens a lot. I think it's maybe not that hard to get a good first page of your script. Um, Apparently, it, started, it was
4: extremely hard.
3: <laughs> but I thought like when this begins, I'm like, all right. I think this is on the right page. The opening scene is, uh, we're in the afterworld in Beetlejuice's house. It's this interior kitchen. He crosses to the stove, shakes the kettle to see if there's enough water, lights the stove, glances at two watches on his wrists. Uh, He opens the window over the sink. A rush of flame! He quickly shuts the window. He takes a toothbrush from a tumbler by the sink, brushes his teeth for a microsecond, slaps water on his face, then dries his hands under his armpits. A cockroach goes by. He picks it up pops it in his mouth. Picks up a jar of instant coffee and looks into it. It's empty. The kettle starts to whistle. He pours hot water from the kettle into the jar, swishing it around to pick up a trace elements of coffee. Then he pours the pale brown liquid into a cup with a picture of Elvis on it. He nods respectfully to the image of the king, then slurps and drinks. Um, and then it's all downhill from here, though. <laughs> uh, but that's just that part. I'm like picturing it. I'm like, all right, all right.
5: Yeah, I'm not uh, mad at a day in the life of Beetlejuice.
3: Yeah, yeah. Dries his hands hands under his armpits, that sounds about right. What got me, and uh, Mallory and I were talking about this a little bit, is like
4: right off the bat,
3: he is very rude to his like, live-in girlfriend. Yes. Rita. I will say,
4: when I was a kid in the 90s, I would have thought Beetlejuice's girlfriend must be the coolest chick ever. <laughs> I would have absolutely wanted that gig. That was what I every, every goth girl that says she didn't want to kiss Beetlejuice is lying. Uh, so, but he's so mean to her.
3: Yeah, well, I do think it's funny because when we rewatch the first movie, it's like he is the bad guy. Yeah. He is kind of a creep, kind of a perv. But I'd say the animated Beetlejuice show is a perfect example of something that succeeded in taking what you remember about the movie. Because I think people don't really remember because he's just Michael Keaton. He's so fun. So in the show, it's like Beetlejuice is a good guy now and him and Lydia are like buddies
4: and hanging out. And- That's where I was hoping the script was going to go. And I was so, so wrong? wrong.
3: So one of his first lines of dialogue is Rita, who described as, like, basically she's a butterface. She's uh, literally
4: wearing a bag over her head. Oh,
3: no. Well, just to correct you, she's just ugly to the point that he's he has oh, he made her feel oh, so bad me. about being ugly that later, even when he's not home, when she goes to answer the door, she puts a bag over her head just to, like... Anyway, so, but one of his first lines of dialogue is, is like he's like leaving, and she's like basically, oh, I want to go out, and he's like, give me a break. You think I want to be seen out with you, Jesus? And I'm just like, whoa, yeah. this is page two, Beetlejuice. He's, he's just
6: an asshole. <laughs> oh, you use the used a word. word. I used a bad word.
3: Put Uh-oh. the money
1: in the jar.
3: Um. All right. So that we already started off on a bad, bad note here, but. Beetlejuice's current life is he's a janitor at, like, an afterlife grocery store or convenience store because um, he lost his, like, license to, you know, be a uh, – I'm forgetting what they call it. Bio-exorcist. Right? Bio-exorcist thank you. Um, he is visited by the kahuna of Kanuka. By the way, I was like, that's not a real island, right? I looked up. A Kanuka is a type of tree in Australia. Fun <laughs> fact. Um, <laughs> But uh, they want him to exercise the Dietzes, basically. And that's how we move into meeting the Dietzes. Like Steve said, uh, Charles has used his uh, mass fortune to buy this entire island. He's building a resort. Um, And the the locals are not happy. Uh, There's a gang of locals who, for some reason, they (laughs) refer to as beatniks.
6: Beatniks, yeah. Yeah.
3: I don't know if... They thought that was Hawaiian in some way, because it just confused me, because I'm just thinking of a bunch of people in, like, turtlenecks and berets with, like, 50s <laughs> goatees snapping.
1: Well, German has Never drink coffee.
3: I, I'm assuming that was maybe, like, a beach movie joke, but, I mean, beach movies are from, like, the 60s. I don't know. Anyway, uh, t- typifies the kind of weird choices in this movie. Um... And uh, I'm curious, Mallory, what you thought. As someone who I know probably loved Lydia uh, growing up. I, one weird thing in this was her, like, love story she has with Kimo, who's, like, the lead surfing beatnik. And it just kind of gives her this sort of a Gidget style, like, silly girl in love
4: Honestly, subplot. Honestly... I think that might be the absolute greatest failing of this script. Like all kidding aside, like they kept a lot of the Beetlejuice isms from the first movie, and he's so sarcastic, and he's silly, and whatever. But for me, the beauty of Beetlejuice, and one of the I think the true secret sauce, besides the amazing Tim Burton aesthetic, is the characters are so cool. You know, the characters are so fantastic. The performances are amazing, but they're working with really cool people, and Lydia is just fantastic. She's amazing. She's funny. She's smart. She's sarcastic. She's clever. She has her own own agenda she has her own things you really feel for her and it was like this character or this writer is like let's take everything that's good about Lydia and throw her in the trash mm. there is no she basically has no personality in this movie she really doesn't seem to have any motivations or things that she wants to do she has no agency she's not even goth anymore she yeah. doesn't even look cool there's just like nothing about her you could replace her with put a hat on this water bottle and it could be <laughs> Lydia and that's really the crushing part about this
5: yeah, I would say I would even say the same about Delia, right? That's Catherine O'Hara. Yes. Right? Yeah. How do
4: you make that character boring? I know
5: she's so she has nothing
3: to do in this. She does nothing. Has a couple lines. She she's just,
4: sh- she's shrill. She's just shrieking. Well, her whole
3: storyline is that she wants to divorce Charles, and Charles doesn't want a divorce. Yeah. And that's, and that's pretty much kinda, it. Yeah.
5: yeah. Yes. And she's so incredible in the original movie. I mean, it's such a waste, and it's a, a good thing that they didn't afford well, this. They
3: changed
6: Charles's character too. I mean, in the first movie he was kind of this wealthy guy who kind of wanted the simple life out in the country and suddenly he's this land baron in hawaii opening, yeah. <laughs> this fancy resort and i'm like what
4: happened to charles too i like yeah, everything that made the characters who they were in the first movie is taken away. Yeah, it's yeah. gone.
1: Well, in service the the core problem is that nobody in this movie actually wants anything that matters to them at all. And the script just doesn't do the work of making us give a shit. Like, uh, oh, I just said the S word. Where's the swear jar? Um, you know, so we kind of have to deal with, you know, these motivations that are very, they're very heady. Right. They have like nothing to do with anything that feels personal and um, there's no sense of a relationship between any of the characters. So without, you know, conflicting needs, without relationships, without like any reason whatsoever for anybody to be in conflict, like there's no scenes. Like there's literally nothing for any of the characters to do except be in those scenes, wait for Beetlejuice to show up and then have some funny set pieces that are set pieces.
3: Well, and the beatniks decide they're going to kidnap Charles because they want to get him to stop destroying the environment. And I was like, oh, interesting. So there's going to be a whole kidnapping subplot. Incorrect. (laughs) They kidnap him. And then uh, in the next scene, uh, the police show up and all the beatniks get arrested. So really, that was just a plot device to get the beatniks in trouble, which is why Lydia needs to go to the afterworld to get Beetlejuice so she can get the beatniks out of jail. Um, (laughs) But but it has to travel through
5: the subatomic universe to get to the afterworld, right? Oh,
3: and I skipped over what is really the best subplot in the whole movie. Um, We said that the script doesn't give Lydia that much to do. Not entirely true. Uh, what if I told you that Lydia gains the superpower to control the sea? Oh, that's also,
4: right. Well, that's the other thing that we also are skipping over is the fact that Beetlejuice has superpowers in this one. Oh, a lot. Way more than... It's like, you know that scene in every movie where they all are, everyone gets high and everyone turns into weird stuff? That's... Beetlejuice's power in this one somehow there's a scene where he turns them both into mermaids for some reason he's like oh. she doesn't want to swim and he's like don't worry about it let's be merpeople and grabs her legs and turns them into fins for some reason
3: and there aren't really that many jokes it's like the scene Whoa. in Waterworld where he's like you want to see dry land yeah. and yeah. takes her down to the bottom of the ocean which wasn't dry by the way you shouldn't refer to it's it it's like
2: it. wetland oh uh, he <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, turns into tons he turns into a moth one part too yeah it's just and like, up. it's one
4: of those, it, yeah. it, in amongst all of its other problems, it's also breaking its all of its own rule, world-building mm-hmm. rules, so you just have no point, any time you have no what's going on.
3: And let me just read this little bit. So she she learns to control the sea. Very suddenly, there's this guy named Mr. Maui, who I guess is kind of a Mr. Miyagi type. It's like a witch uh, doctor. Yeah, and they're just kind of like hanging out on the beach, and he's like, you have the gift. Did you ever call a wave? Call a wave? I'll teach you. Um... And then the oh, next yeah. time. Because there's we... a curse. The, you the think Cahunas...
4: we're joking, guys. It's this bad. <laughs> and the, then... the,
3: the Kahunas had
6: put a curse on the island so there's no swell, there's no waves. Oh, right, right. So all so the beatniks are bummed and can't, can't surf.
3: Can't surf. Uh, so then we come back. Uh, the, the beatniks like hear some sort of distant singing, and then they realize like Lydia, in a trance, is sitting on a rock facing out to sea. She takes a deep breath and sings. The sound comes out of her mouth and extra it, the, comes out of her mouth is extraordinary, alien, more like whale song than anything human. Uh, the sea is noisier than before. A swell rises. It rises further. It picks up momentum. A series of shots. Lydia singing. The beatniks noticing the swell. The swell is rising until it is a wall of water moving into land. The beatniks run to get their surf birds and head out to sea. The two dogs dance down the beach, barking joyfully. I guess they were dogs.
4: Because uh, dogs love tsunamis. They're yes. am right they, they do. Uh,
3: Lydia sings, transported. The wave starts to curl and break. The beatniks stand at the shoreline and watch the wave, excited. Lydia sings, 100 yards out. Another swell begins, and then uh, everybody starts surfing. This goes on. Oh, it does. It just goes on and on.
4: But this isn't even one of the most important parts of the movie. You'd think a girl decided, realizing that she can control the ocean would be a bit more of importance to the plot.
3: Clearly, the people who made Moana read Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> yeah. Who um, thinks so. it? But, like, what's the name of the big furry guy in Labyrinth who can, like... Ludo. Yeah, yeah Ludo. Ludo, she basically is Ludo. Ludo, like, starts to moan, and the rocks come. Yeah. She's like, I can summon the waves. But Ludo
4: does stuff with that. It's yes. amazing. He saves oh, people's lives.
3: Oh. oh, the waves come back. Oh, yeah. They do come back. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we were jumping back. So she needs to go to the afterlife to get Beetlejuice. And then this is like this weird, it's like the scene in Dr. Strange where he like, you know, first gets zapped and it just turns into this balls tripping, like yeah. 2001.
5: Yeah, bit. I want to see the Panos Cosmatos version of
3: that. Track that
4: trip. is someone who could direct this movie yeah. and I would yeah. watch it. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Um, starring Nicolas Cage yes. as Lydia. As Beetlejuice.
4: And Lydia. Nicolas would as Beetlejuice. <laughs> Lydia, Cage will be would like Beetlejuice. Plays Fake both my money.
3: Um, Yeah, so she astral and it's just like, it's. I mean, it would have looked cool, I'm sure the way Tim Burton would have done it. Uh, she sees a beautiful woman in the Garden of Eden surrounded by extinct animals. Remember that random character. She comes back later. Um, but then she has this very long... Ultimately pointless adventure through the afterlife, which I assume was just that's some of the best stuff in the original Beetlejuice So it's like we got to get to see more than that She meets this guy named Dave who's just a head with like two feet sticking out the bottom of his neck That probably would have been fun. Yeah, it was in for
2: I believe it all takes place on Saturn That was um, kind of brought up in the first Beetlejuice.
3: Hey, you've been to Saturn. I've been to Saturn (laughs) Uh,
2: where all this has taken place. She
3: ends up getting a license that she can give Beetlejuice from a dwarf in the scene I know Steve loves. Yes. <laughs> where? Yeah,
4: okay. This Let's talk my... about that scene for a second <laughs> because the dwarf, in exchange for giving Beetlejuice's license to Lydia, wants to smoke her and she yes. goes into his nose. <laughs> and the thing that I want to know is she comes out all messed up. Is it because she went through his nasal cavity or is it because they had some sort of... Encounter, it is very unclear. It just sounds
1: damned unsanitary, is what it sounds
4: like. (laughs) He's like, our hair is all mussed up, and I'm like, what just is this gross? Is this a perv thing? What's happening? It is
2: a dwarf in a trench coat. (laughs) He clearly
1: derives (laughs) sexual pleasure (laughs) from smoking Lydia.
5: (laughs) Oh, yes. I will, though I will say, and I'm not gonna, I'm not about to defend that that part of the (laughs) scene.
4: Please do not. I will not,
5: I promise. Uh, though I did like the idea of the sort of paranormal governing body that has to give licenses to perform haunting things
4: yeah it was
5: kind of like the Ministry of Magic in the world of Beetlejuice and I was like I like that extension of the world but
4: Harry Potter didn't need to go into anybody's nose Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
5: The, the beginning of the sequence, I was like, cool idea. At the end of the sequence, I was like, oh, God, next page, next page.
3: Although J.K. Rowling loves to keep, like, revealing stuff. Oh, yeah. And tweets of, just wait for it. She's going to be like, After by the, the way, Dumbledore in their smoked Harry I
4: mean, who knows what could happen?
6: Well, the original Beetlejuice did a great job of creating this bureaucracy of the afterlife that you could follow and understand. You understood why they were doing things. The, the afterlife in this just seemed completely random. Yeah.
4: As opposed to everything else that made so much sense. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, well, moving forward, because uh, we only have a limited amount of time, and I very much want to read this one scene with oh my our, God. our acting troupe here. So basically, then we enter the next phase of the movie, which is, again, as Ashley noted, this feels like the kind of movie where it's like, oh, I just want to fix this movie. Because yeah. this was obviously where they're like, alright, even though this is like midway through the script, we're now getting to what you would really think of as the plot, which is Beale Juice shows up in Hawaii in a very unearned moment. Basically, he's just like, hey, I know you want me to do all this magic stuff for you, but I kind of just want to hang out in Hawaii. And she's like, alright, I'll give you three days. And then there's just like a bunch of nonsense. They just have a weird party? Oh, lots of parties, lots of surfing, uh, and then this one a very unwoke scene um, where Beetlejuice is... Well, let's just start reading. You guys all got your parts. Just a I'll... heads up. This, this script yep. doesn't like
4: women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, oh, I don't know if this ch- man has ever met a human ch- woman. I would be very surprised. Well, even you know when Charles,
3: like are saying, Charles used to be like this lovable, nice guy. When Charles is kidnapped, he's being very creepy to the women, the yes. female beatniks. She's basically yes. like, you got to get rid of these bums. Hey. I
4: hope eventually that Jonathan meets a human woman and, <laughs> and gets to interact with her and learn, learn our ways. Uh, but I don't, it was not this day.
3: All right, here we go. Well, and
2: just know, oh. this is like two years before Bad Lieutenant came out, so
3: he's like, he has... Oh, um, I like that yeah, yeah. So anyway, set up. <laughs> um, exterior Hotel Beach Day. The sea is full of swimmers, canoeists, windsurfers, and surfers. Close on the beach. The beach is jumping. Hotel stewards are renting out towels, cha- beach chairs, and beach umbrellas. Builders and decorators are putting up the finishing touches of... Oh, yeah, they're all building up, and like, when the movie starts, it's like, we have 14 days to the grand opening gala of uh, the new Dietz Resort. Um, so, Beetlejuice comes out. Two babes in bikinis are sunbathing and reading magazines. Hi, girls. The babes look over the top of their sunglasses. Beetlejuice is standing above them, dressed like a cool New York photographer on holiday. He has a camera in one hand. I'm Bruce Weber. He puts one hand out and smiles politely.
0: The uh, photographer.
3: Melinda shakes his hand, uncertain. Bruce Weber, the fashion photographer? Both girls sit up and take notice. I'm
0: not working at the moment. I'm on vacation. But when I saw you two beautiful babes lying out here like a pair of mouth-watering weenies in doggy heaven, I said, whoa, get your camera, Bruce. Maybe these two chickies want to make the cover of Vogue. Vogue?
3: Beetlejuice nods and walks around him contemplating them with a professional eye.
0: What's your name, gorgeous? Melinda. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Melinda, I need you on all fours with your butt facing me.
3: Wait, I just want to say that line one more time. (laughs) Okay, Melinda, I need you on all
0: fours with your butt facing me.
3: All right. That's where we're at. He turns uh, inquiringly to Dana. Name? Dana?
1: Dana,
0: what you do is. You sit on her face. On her her face.
1: I got the line wrong. I must have instinctively been trying to make it better. You took the the rewriting.
3: You know what
0: you do is uh, sit in her back. (laughs) This this is just a test shot.
4: Oh, okay.
3: The girls follow instructions. Like this.
0: Rear end out. Shade more, Melinda.
3: Uh, He surveys them with a
0: critical eye. Uh, Melinda, turn the top half of your body around as far as it'll go. Dana, turn around and face me, but don't move your buns. They do so.
6: What do I do
4: with my hands? Behind your head,
0: arch your back, stick out your jugs.
3: Stick out your jugs. Yeah. Stick That's out your sure jugs. I getting... almost
4: put the script down at this point,
3: by the way. <laughs> yeah. You're like, nope, Comic-Con canceled. Uh, another angle. Two bodybuilders are lifting weights. They notice Beetlejuice and the contorting babes, their girlfriends.
0: Dana, this could be tricky, but I want you to try it. Lift your right leg. No, your right leg. Over Melinda's left shoulder. I don't I can do it. Here, I'll help you.
3: The bodybuilders put down their weights and walk over to where Beetlejuice is pushing and pulling the two babes into absurdly su- sexy positions. Sexy. He, just as he is adjusting Dana's breasts, he is pushed roughly on the shoulder. Hey. You mind? I'm working. Like
5: hell you are. It's Bruce Weber, the Vogue photographer.
3: Cut two Troy, Marty, Melinda, and Dana are contorted into a four-person human totem pole. Beetlejuice steps back and admires his creation. Behind him, a family are playing volleyball. Two kids are staring at the human totem pole.
4: What's that?
0: A bunch of yo-yos. And
3: CN Yay.
4: Stick See, out we all, we all, my all new narrowly rallying missed crying. this, folks.
2: <laughs> well, actually, the other funny thing is that while Beetlejuice Juice is walking around Hawaii, he's wearing a t-shirt that says,
3: "Oh my God, I tight about this. butts drive me nuts. So, I guess. <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, time flies. We really need to get this wrapped up, but... Uh, Just to kind of quickly finish out the rest of the movie, it's all building up to this big gala. Um, There's kind of still this thread that Beetlejuice wants to marry Lydia so he can become human again. Um, There's a big surf competition. Beetlejuice is in the surf competition. And then the entire, like, last third of this movie is really where the budget picks up, is that Beetlejuice tries to marry her. Then Beetlejuice's mom shows up, who's the woman I told you to remember from when Lydia had her... Ball trippy subatopic adventure. Who's like basically Eve, except her name's Gala, and they're at a gala, which I thought was an odd, confusing choice. Uh, and then since Be- she basically she chastises Beetlejuice, and he's like, "All right, fine, I won't try to marry this woman. Oh, I'm just gonna murder everyone oh. on the island."
4: <laughs> Which is, that's how much the script hates movies, or hates, hates women, by the way. Oh, I guess they, it hates movies, too, but it hates women.
2: Oh, I actually forgot, he gave Lydia a love potion, so she falls in love with him.
4: Yeah, so. Um, but so that's just this big
3: action extravaganza where there's cars that turn into wolves, dinosaurs come to life. Yes. The heads on Easter Island wake up, and then in the next scene are on Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs>
5: They become giants, right? Stomping yeah. around. But how
3: did they get from Easter Island to Hawaii? They're giants. They're yeah. <laughs> giant <laughs> powers. Yeah, it's big, true. Big strides. Um, and basically, everyone is about to die again. Beelzebub is trying to kill everyone on the island out of spite. Uh, and then they're all trapped at like the top of a mountain. in Lydia. No, no, no,
4: they're all trapped on top of a volcano. A volcano. volcano. Sorry. That's the other thing. It's like, how much money can we waste? Uh, Let's put a volcano in there. All of it.
3: Lydia summons a wave that like washes away all the bad monsters and kind of destroys yet protects the island in a way that Charles is like, well, I guess I will leave this as a nature preserve. Waka waka. (laughs) Uh,
2: And at that point, what's left of the island to preserve...
3: Uh, And the happy ending for Rita, Beetlejuice's long-suffering girlfriend, is that Beetlejuice accidentally drinks the love potion at the end and now is, like, in love with her. And then we cut to him at an afterworld club singing uh, the Harlem Shuffle, which they decided to just, rather than Beetlejuice sings the Harlem Shuffle, the last two pages of the script are just the lyrics to the Harlem Shuffle.
4: Which is the greatest two pages of the entire script. Yeah. And I'm like,
3: this guy have like a page number he needed to reach? And he's just like, hmm.
4: He definitely got paid by the page. For
3: sure. But again, unfortunately we don't, we have to basically wrap this up in five minutes. I do want to touch on just very lightly Warren Skerin, the guy uh, who wrote original Beetlejuice, wrote another Beetlejuice sequel called Beetlejuice in Love and tragically, didn't you say Steve died two weeks after turning it in? Oh, two weeks after he turned it in, he found out he had
2: bone oh. cancer and uh. died later that year, um, unfortunately.
3: That one is less egregious. It's unfortunately not, it's, it's kind of monotonous. It's basically the story. That one drops to the Deets entirely. Beetlejuice is the only returning character and that one's about a composer and his girlfriend who's like an opera singer and he's midway through writing an opera and dies They're on the Eiffel Tower and he proposes and it gets struck by lightning and so Beetlejuice is like not even really that important to the storyline, but it's basically his fiance is trying to communicate with him in the afterlife so he can finish writing his opera and the whole like final third of the movie is the opera going on and Beetlejuice screwing it up. It's a weird movie.
1: The one thing that kind of struck me about that script was, and actually it's really an interesting exercise comparing page one of each of these scripts um, because you realize, oh, writer who maybe doesn't know what he's doing and professional, right? Like the first page of Beetlejuice and Love, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm in competent hands. I know like this is going to be a story. This is going to be a thing. Its issue is that it never really builds to anything that we we care about,
3: but uh, it's just, it's night and day. Um, well, unfortunately, we got to end very suddenly, because them's the rules people. Can we get a big round of applause for our panel here? Um, and I hope you listen to more episodes of Best Movies Never Made. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else podcasts exist. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Never Made Film. Um, do you guys want to just say your uh, Instagram handles really fast? Go you down. can
4: find me on social media way too often, especially on Twitter at Mallory O'Mara.
5: Yeah, I'm at Judson Scott, Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Stephen Melching. I'm on Twitter at
3: Ashmaster0. All right guys, thanks for coming and we won't be seeing you at the movies.
2: <laughs> that was great. Yeah, thank you.